Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. You know, nature already has all of the answers. She's the perfect scientist. I feel like humans have such a tiny perspective of knowledge and everything that we know, the entire body of science that we know is just a pinprick of light in this mantle. Truth is the light on the other side. And so each of us, it's, it's our job to just expand that little pinprick of light a bit more, you know, to try, try and understand and comprehend and, and work within these intricate and complex systems that nature has already laid out for us. Hey there, solar warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. I'm thrilled that you've chosen to spend this time with me and I'm excited to bring you today's guest. In episode 146, John Bonanno and I revealed our new project, Impact Positive. So please do take a chance to go and check that episode out as well, as it's the prologue to this interview series and provides important context. And now we're back with the second installment of Impact Positive with Miss Sandra Kwok, founder and CEO of 10 Power. This episode highlights one of the most inspiring women I've had the joy of meeting in the past year. And she was just recently named Clean Tech Woman of the Year at the prestigious EarthX Gala just last week. So don't just take my word for it. She's a veritable badass. And I know you're going to love this episode as we dig into what makes the serial entrepreneur tick. When you're done, you'll find the first installment with Catherine Rosaya of BP Lightsource and 155 other inspiring and influential leader stories over at mysuncast.com. But for now, get ready for Impact Positive here on Suncast. All right, welcome to the next episode of Impact Positive. And we are going to play around here with a lot of different elements of how not only we approach the podcast itself, but how we approach you, Mr. Listener, Miss Listener. If you are following us on Twitter, you know that I did a poll recently asking, hey, what do you think? Energy warrior, solar warrior, climate warrior came up. So how about climate warrior this week? I like climate warrior in particular because today's guest is a true climate warrior, a serial entrepreneur who is no stranger to fighting climate change. Sandra Kwok is an executive and systems thinker applying her disruptive innovations to international development and has so for quite some time. She's presently CEO and founder of the social business 10 Power, which is itself winning awards for the projects they've done down in Haiti. And they are providing renewable energy to communities that lack electricity access. There are so many different elements and aspects of her background and history that do lead to what we consider an impact positive position on life or impact positive role in our community. And we're so grateful to have you on the show today. Sandra, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And of course, we've got my co-host, Mr. John Bonanno on the line as well. Hello. Welcome back, friend. Thank you. So Sandra, I would love to hear from your perspective how you first were introduced to the notion of clean energy and 
Where was the pivot point where you decided, this is where I'm going to focus my career? I actually first found out about climate change in elementary school. I came across a book in the library called 50 Ways to Help the Earth. And I was reading it and it was talking about greenhouse gases. And this, this was in the mid to early 90s and climate change and this massive issue that the earth was facing. I felt this just gigantic imperative. I actually started a little zine called Eco and I gave a presentation to my entire school. I dressed up like a scientist, like got my dad's reading glasses and like a big white beard, you know, because in, in my in my little girl view of the world, like scientists were old white men. I gave this presentation to my entire school on greenhouse gas emissions. That was kind of my spear that I, I gathered at a young age and, and was able to travel throughout my life with. And in grad school here in San Francisco at Presidio Graduate School, I started looking at the largest places where I could have an impact. So looking at where the majority of emissions were coming from. So when you divide up the pie of emissions, most emissions come from the built environment. So about 30% of emissions come from buildings, and that's, that's from their their construction and a lot from their energy use over their operations, you know, HVAC, lighting, electronics, so on. And only about 25% of emissions come from transportation. So if we really want to target the biggest chunk that we can chew of emissions, we should start with the built environment. So my first company that I started while in grad school was actually an energy efficiency company because I was looking at where there was a business case that already made financial sense. So people didn't even necessarily need to care about being green. They could just look at the dollars and say, you know what, this makes sense from a single bottom line for us to act with a triple bottom line responsibility. And from there, I went into big data for the smart grid, working in Silicon Valley with a company that was building apps for utilities to balance supply and demand on the grid in real time using big data from smart meter information. And we were able to run some of the largest residential demand response programs in the United States. And that company now has over two gigawatts under management internationally across North America, Europe, and Asia. I was feeling good about the environmental impact that we were having with Autogrid. But something for me personally was missing from a social justice perspective and, uh, and especially from a gender empowerment perspective. You know, we have all this incredible technology at our fingertips, especially here in the Bay Area. You know, there's, there's always some new app or gadget or device coming out. But in the long run, what difference is that really going to make? Here in the U.S., we turn on a light switch and we have no idea usually where that electricity is coming from. It's something that we take for granted. But in places like Haiti, where more than 70% of the population does not have access to electricity and no one has access to stable or reliable electricity, it can be a single watt that makes the difference between life and death. Sandra, that, that is a wonderful intro and thank you for that. I, I do want to parse out a couple things. First, I want to give you a shout out for Presidio because as a new program, I think some of the people coming out of that MBA program in, in sustainability have been super, super impressive. And clearly, you are a product of that program as well. So a shout out to those folks doing the good work at Presidio School of Management because it really is a great organization doing really good work. You met Jamie there and started PowerZoa from there. Tell me a little bit more about your experience. You came to the Bay Area. What were you seeking when you, when you were on your journey? You, you graduated from university. You, you headed out into the workforce and you said, what was the first thing? Just like you told us about that first experience reading the book and dressing up as the old white scientist, which thankfully that is changing. Tell us a little bit more about your journey 
as you departed university and decided what was next for you? When I graduated college, I was actually working in the arts. And I, I still think that art is a really powerful mechanism for engaging people in dialogue, especially around social and environmental change. Because when your brain is open and curious to creativity, I think that, that you can receive messages in a different way. I was actually, I was running an underground arts nonprofit and we, we were publishing a free publication that had critical dialogue on, on arts and politics and culture. And I was also running a photography studio and feeling like the level of impact that I wanted to have was a little out of my reach. I was, I was feeling like my personal impact could be greater. I actually had this moment. It was almost like a primal scream one night. I remember so clearly I was just feeling frustrated at knowing that I had a greater potential and the amount of impact that I was currently having in the world. And, and while it was really rewarding working with people on a, on a local level, and it was really nice working with people one-on-one, -on -one, I wanted to have a, a much larger impact on our planet and on the, the trajectory of our future. That was what really motivated me, that feeling of frustration and, and wanting to increase my personal impact. Um, so I began looking for sustainable business programs. The type of impact that I wanted to have on the world was reversing a lot of the negative activities that we've witnessed. And when you look at where environmental degradation is coming from, it's largely the commercial sector. So what do we need to turn around in order to reverse climate change? We need to work from within businesses. We need to re-examine how our economics work. And that was really what motivated me to go and get my MBA in sustainability. From there, everything has, has really flowed. You know, I, I really, I feel like I've been able to put myself in the situations where I'm having my largest personal impact that I'm capable of. And, and I really, I, I encourage young people, I encourage people anywhere that they are in their career to examine, you know, what, what their personal impact is that they're having on the world and on the planet. And really, you know, we're not plants, we're not rooted to the ground, we have the advantage of being able to use our legs and, and get ourselves into the situation where we are both happiest from personal sustainability level, and where we are also able to have the most positive influence on those around us. But you, you said that commercial is the largest emitter. And of course, that's true. How important was getting that MBA and learning the tools and the language of business? How has that affected you in your work with Jim Chu and with the World Bank and with all the other financing mechanisms and business-minded entrepreneurship? How important was that in terms of pre-MBA and post-MBA in terms of engagement on not only making a sustainable venture, but making it sustainable economically as well. For me, Presidio got me exactly where I wanted to be in, in terms of the professional acumen, my um, experience with entrepreneurship. Throughout the program, we worked every semester with a different company or organization doing a real-world project. So basically, we had student teams that were acting as consultants. And one semester, we worked with the Center for Resource Solutions and their Green E program, which is a renewable energy certificate program that quantifies RECs and, and actually makes sure that they're not additional so that the RECs are, are actually can be certified and are not being double counted anywhere else in the market. And so we worked with them to actually design a futures trading mechanism that is now live on NASDAQ. That was one semester project. Another semester, we worked with a nonprofit called Green Empowerment, and we designed a microfinance model for organic farmers in rural Nicaragua to have a revolving loan for them to get solar-powered drip irrigation systems 
on their farms. And then that capital would go back into a community fund so that the community could get renewable energy to power their homes. And many of those homes had never had electricity before. And then we went to Nicaragua and implemented the project. So that was actually my first taste in energy access in, um, in parts of the world that don't have electricity today. And, and so both in terms of, of wetting my appetite for um, starting 10 Power and also in terms of, of giving me the exact skills that I was looking for, my sustainability MBA was crucial in helping me along that path. And you also have not abandoned your roots in the arts either with your uh, role in Sea Stars with uh, Amanda and Shauna and, and others. I always look forward to hearing you all sing uh, about a carbon tax or uh, some other thing. It's really wonderful. <laughs> and to give you some background, Nico, Sandra is part of a, of a women's acapella group that, uh, that does their own writing. Uh, and they usually use a, a, a song from pop culture and they, they uh, adopt the words to some sort of climate message. I, it's always wonderful. Tell, me, tell us more about that, be the genesis of the group and, and the dynamics between the participants. The Sea Stars are a band of sisters united not by blood, but by a shared purpose to serve the planet. And we actually came together just because we love, we love singing. We love having fun. It was at Amanda Joy Ravenhill's birthday party, which is kind of like an international holiday in our friend group. Every year we go camping or, or do something crazy for her birthday. And so we had made up a song for her birthday and she had this vision of, of us singing about sustainability and, um, and performing together on a larger scale. And so I had that night, I'd just been calling everyone my sea star, like my sister. I was like, oh, you're my sea star. <laughs> they, they were saying, what are, what are you talking about? I was like, my sea star, you're my sea star. So it all just came together that one night a few years ago. We have a music video right now. It's called No Oil. And you can get to it through our website, which is the sea stars, S-E-A-S-T-A-R-S.org. We're getting ready to drop another single about a price on carbon. And we're super excited on March 28th, we are performing for one of our idols, one of our heroines, Starhawk, who is the author of The Fifth Sacred Thing. And we had actually talked about the universe conspiring to help you or pro-noia or woe manifestation, whatever you want to call it. We had just gotten done passing around her book in our group. So, so each of us had read it and given it to the next person. On that final turn of the last page, we were contacted by a group that's working directly with Starhawk to create a regenerative agriculture program. So we are performing on March 28th for a fundraiser for diversity scholarships for her regenerative agriculture program. Now, I want to ask you something you just said. You said something about what is the true kernel of instigation with you? Is it to save the planet or is it to save humanity? Because it's my view that the planet doesn't care if we're here or not. Mother Earth is actually going to be a lot better off without humans. <laughs> <laughs> right. So who are we fighting for? Like, what's the climate for you? What's the climate battle all about? You know what breaks my heart is species loss and all of the mass extinctions. You know, we're in the sixth mass extinction. We're in the first extinction that's that's been really caused by humanity and we're, we're watching all these beautiful species the vaquita there are 22 vaquitas left in the wild it's the world's smallest porpoise this is in california mexico waters this is due to overfishing and the giraffes are experiencing a silent extinction right now because nobody's 
really talking about it. All of these incredibly beautiful creatures that, that are losing their lives because of human activity. And think about, think about life in the universe, right? With all of our, all of our space exploration and, and all of our curiosity, as far as we can probe, send signals, as far as we can see in the universe, we have not found another planet with life. And think about all of the, the billions and trillions of years of evolution, you know, of rocks, of minerals, of, of gases that led to this perfect combination of this one planet Earth that we know of that can support life and, and all, of, all of the billions of years of evolution to get to where our species are today and, and how quickly humans have, have basically, you know, destroyed this. It's, it's like a sandcastle, you know, you can, you can spend hours and hours building it and it only takes one second to smash it down. And I feel like right now in, in our collective evolution as a species, we're basically at, at our toddler age, right? Where, where we have, we're just starting to get some type of self-awareness about, you know, there being something other than me, 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 you know, <laughs> and, and we've pushed our boundaries and, and we're, we've thrown a lot of temper tantrums, you know, we've, we've been really selfish, but it's time for us to start to grow and, and to start to mature and evolve and become more benign and generous. Every single other species on the planet gives back in some way. There's not an idea of a, a form of linear waste, you know, where you use something once and then you throw it away and it's, it's gone, right? Every single thing that, that other creatures create is an input for some other process. Like a, a tree doesn't only create enough fruit for itself. It creates fruit to feed everyone else. It, it creates compost. It, it works symbiotically with mycelial networks. And it's time for, for humans to really self-examine and take a look at how we can become a regenerative species similar to the way that we operated for tens of thousands of years as indigenous and native people. And it's only in the last couple of hundred years that we've forgotten how to do that. So, so really it's all of that knowledge is still there and it's about respecting our elders. It's about respecting our first nations and indigenous cultures and just going back and remembering how we are supposed to live. As an entrepreneur, you had an adventure with PowerZoa, which was very noble, and you worked with Jamie Simon, who now lives in Truckee, but uh, she was in the Bay Area, and you guys decided, we are going to try to hit the built environment with knocking out their use of energy. I am very familiar with the work of Matt Golden and what they're doing around efficiency in his first company, his second company. Efficiency has been always so difficult to create a business around. Can you talk us through, of course, the instigation was to capture or reduce that 30% of use, but what was the thesis behind PowerZoa and, and frankly, what went wrong? PowerZoa, we, we designed to basically do smart buildings before smart buildings was a term. So we were a little bit before our time. You know, IoT didn't really exist yet conceptually. And our goal with PowerZoa was to provide complete analysis into commercial buildings energy use so that they could measure, manage, and automate controls to save electricity all the way down to the outlet level. Usually office buildings' biggest um, energy user is air conditioning, HVAC systems. The second largest user is lights. And, and the third is plug loads. So we had designed a system that was utilizing existing building management platforms for the lighting and HVAC. And, and then we have our, had our own proprietary hardware and software 
for pulling all of that together and also being able to automate controls at the outlet level. Timing is a big part of it. We were a little bit early on the curve as a startup with limited resources. We did really well in the competition circuit, which is something that anyone who's a student, I encourage them to apply to a lot of competitions. We did well in student competitions. We were a finalist in the Clean Tech Open, and we were actually invited to participate in a NASA launch initiative. And despite all of that success, I think for a number of reasons, we're not able to achieve traction fast enough. For And I think what you mentioned is a big part of it is energy efficiency is not as sexy as putting solar panels on your roof. You know, it's not as visible. It's, it's something that not everyone can see. And now that companies like Nest have created other entryways, you know, it's about the smart home, it's about the cool thermostat, you know, the things that people can can grok, that they can touch. It's starting to get a little bit more traction. And especially now as we're seeing, you know, more popularity around peak time pricing with smart meters, as people are able to do load shaving across entire demand curves, you know, with, with AutoGrid, we had millions of people participating in demand response events. We were able to deliver megawatts of savings to utilities. So with all of that machine learning and data analytics, we're able to see much larger scale trends. Whereas for a single commercial building owner, you know, selling them just on reducing their electricity bills, they they may have, you know, a million other things that, that are more important to them. And so, so it was a little bit more difficult sell at that time. We did have some success with regulations. And I think this is this is where the policy, civil society, and economic nexus is really important in sustainability. So there were a number of benchmarking laws passed for Energy Star benchmarking in about a half a dozen cities across the United States. And San Francisco was one of those cities. And there is nothing like regulation to help your business model. You know, if you call somebody and say, hey, you're going to get a fine if you don't start benchmarking your electricity, they're like, all right, how much, when, and where (laughs) you're hired. So that regulation was really helpful. And we were able to do a number of energy efficiency audits and help buildings to begin to save electricity and, and put in energy saving measures as a result of that regulation. Long story short, I got talent acquired into AutoGrid and that was a result of PowerZoa and the partnerships that I was building at PowerZoa. So AutoGrid was one of the companies that I reached out to about partnerships around demand response. And shortly thereafter, the the CEO and founder Amit invited me to join their team. And it was at at the time that we were beginning to wind PowerZoa down. Hey, Warrior, are you a solar developer or would be solar developer who just constantly finds yourself a little stumped in the area of engineering or looking for software that might help you with developing your solar project? Let me introduce you to FTC Solar, a leader in solar project engineering powered by their cutting edge Sundat software and featuring their new Voyager single access tracker. If you're in the utility scale solar market, FTC Solar has products and services that can improve your project from concept through construction. You can find them at ftcsolar.com or you could just go to mysuncast.com and click on the FTC Solar banner ad. Hey Tribe, if you've been getting my newsletters, then you know I've been listing all the upcoming events that I'll be attending, like the pre-charge event that we had here in Puerto Rico this week. It was a phenomenal success. We sold out, and I just wanted to give a huge shout out to all those who attended and trusted James Ellsmore and I 
to put on this event. You came, you contributed to the best event that I've attended this year. Thank you so much. And in a few weeks, we'll be back in Mexico for what is easily the most important trade show of the year for that country. It's called Mirek Week. And if you're a part of the tribe and you'll be headed to Mirek, please do let me know so we can meet up. We'll be hosting another phenomenal tribe event that you won't want to miss. Stay tuned to the newsletter where I will always be sharing discount codes for registering to this and more events. Now, back to the show. The 10 Power Adventure, which is just, I think, exploding in a great way and really having that human impact at the bottom of the pyramid that solar and you just said it yourself i mean resiliency and low cost and doesn't create gentrification those things are great for opportunity zones and particular all of puerto rico is an opportunity zone but haiti of course not being in the u.s i'm super interested in 10 powers role in the haiti project because i know i think you've done two or now three how many have you done so far yeah, we have done two Delo Haiti water purification facilities. And then we actually last year did a project on UNICEF Haiti's headquarters. And it is the largest solar installation on any UNICEF base in the entire world. We got to rewind the tape just a little bit, though. I want to know 10 Power is doing this. And I, and I think I know, but I want you to say it. So I'll start at the top. 10 Power is a company that's working to bring renewable energy to places that don't have access to electricity today, starting in Haiti. And what we found to be the missing pieces to creating a solar market in Haiti, a place with some of the world's highest costs of electricity and most abundant amounts of sunshine, is that finance is necessary to provide access to solar. And, and while every single person who lives in Haiti, every single business owner in Haiti sees that means we have a ton of sun in Creole, they don't have the capex to take out of their working capital to invest in solar 100% upfront. I mean, how many people in the US could pay for a solar installation or a car or a house if you had to put all the cash down upfront? So finance is a critical component of what we're doing. And as we've started building out our market presence in Haiti, we found that we also need to be involved because there's not codes or standards that are enforced in Haiti. And so we need to be deeply involved with the project development and with the oversight and installation. And we are also focused on capacity building. So training for international codes and standards with a gender empowerment lens. Is that what Haiti Tech is? Haiti Tech is a leading tech university in Haiti. So we are working directly with Haiti Tech and the Solar Electric Light Fund to help provide training opportunities for their female and male solar students that they have in their program right now. Is that the role that you guys are playing is you're bringing the financial stack together and bringing the variety of stakeholders and pulling that whole package together to finance these projects? Yep. We're providing finance, project development, and we are directly overseeing installation. And we also run the operations and maintenance. So, so it's for the customer, it's end to end. For mm-hmm. us, we subcontract local solar installers because it's very important to us that we're creating local jobs within the community and providing training and um, making sure that there's quality control. From our investors' perspective, we, we can yield returns back to the investors. And for our customers, they're saving money on electricity. 10 Power basically manages the entire project and makes sure that, that those assets are well-maintained over time. So in project nomenclature, you are the developer 
and you subcontracted Green Tech Solar as the EPC, and then your Dillo Haiti was your off-taker. Is that a reasonable explanation? Exactly. This is an amazing project. It's a it's solar to water filtration because there's an enormous need for clean water in Haiti. Half the deaths in Haiti are caused by poor water quality. Is that right? Yeah, and it's even higher for children. One in three Ugh. children dies from, it's so curable, from diarrhea. And then after the earthquake, the UN actually brought cholera to Haiti. And, um, and so, so that cholera outbreak, they're still trying to control now, almost 10 years later. Your solar power is powering a water filtration system that's then, I believe, there's some sort of co-op structure that the local community has some level of ownership there or is, is required to hire local people. Or tell me a little bit about that, that local buy-in work that you've done. Yeah, so Zulu Haiti employs local people. They um, employ between seven to 12 people per water center that they have. And so on site, they, they have a pump, they have water purification facilities, and then people can come and bring reusable containers to the location. And they also have a hyper-efficient distribution system using motorcycle tricycles. So they can bring water out to more remote locations. They have a network of resellers that they sell water to at one-third of the competing alternatives for water. The majority of those resellers are women. So their network supports over 600 microenterprises, majority women owned. Can you talk me through and talk us through the actual deal structure stack? Because you, you said that there were, was there some debt involved? How much was put up by the local Delo? How much did you guys put in? What were the yields? I mean, let's, like, let's get into the details of that because I think it's quite important to understand that not only do properties in a developed world in solar or energy storage or electric vehicles, not, not only can they pencil, and they do, but in places of great need, there are ways to offset some of the perceived risk. So t- talk us through that deal structure. Cool. I'm not going to get into, into numbers because I'm not, I'm not comfortable disclosing those publicly. Sure. But, um, but I will say there is massive financial opportunity at the base of the economic pyramid. And a lot of completely overlooked markets like Haiti, continuously overlooked. You know, when you look at Latin America, Caribbean, which is often grouped together for development purposes, the Caribbean is, is often left out of those Latin Caribbean conversations. When you're looking at the Caribbean specifically, Haiti is always excluded because it's such an outlier. You know, when most people are talking about solar in the Caribbean, they're talking about solar for resorts. And Haiti is, has been continuously left out of conversations. And there is a massive business opportunity that, that we have discovered in Haiti. Right now, we see the potential size of the commercial and industrial solar market at 675 million. We have a pipeline of over 100 million in interested customers. And the beautiful thing about energy access is that it's a virtuous cycle. So the more electricity that people have, the more value they're able to create, the more electricity is demanded. And when it's renewable electricity, that growth curve is no problem. We're going to see the largest increase in our consumption of energy as a planet coming from non-OECD nations in the next 10 to 20 years. There's a potential for us to increase carbon dioxide emissions by 150% if that growth comes from fossil fuel-based sources. And there's also an opportunity to do exactly the opposite, to help advance people's lives, to help improve their status in the world, to help them to achieve their full empowerment through electricity. But if that's coming from 100% renewables, we can do that in a way that divests carbon dioxide emissions from growth and prosperity. And our business model in Haiti 
basically requires a down payment for the customer. So we'll structure that at about 15 to 20% of the overall cost of the system. And then the customer is able to pay that back over time with interest. So we can yield interest back to our investors. Some of that interest comes back to 10 power and we reinvest that in more solar projects. My next question is to re-emphasize how wonderful the work is that's being done here. Utilizing solar as a low-cost, resilient energy source to provide water to people in the greatest need. And that is just amazing. I mean, it's like, it's a perfect application, especially in a place that has ample amounts of sun, as you said before in uh, Creole French. I would really be interested in your view on how does this scale fast? So our vision in Haiti is to build a business model that we can replicate in as many places without access to electricity as possible. So our goal in every single piece of material that we create from from contractor agreements to customer contracts to our credit vetting process is that it's easy to translate. It's easy for the customer to understand. We can bring it to other markets as needed. And that we also, you know, there's there's going to be variables in every market. There's there's going to be X factors. There's going to be things that are really just highly specific to that market. So having a flexible strategy and and having at, at least, you know, a, a, a replicable process for for dealing with those unknown variables as we grow into new markets. And I think a big piece of international development that has has been missing historically is engagement with the local population. And you'll see that there are plenty of failed projects in Haiti. And one of the biggest differences between projects that succeed and projects that fail is engaging local stakeholders and having the community really feel ownership over the project. And, and so having a process for community engagement, having, having a process for gender empowerment, for, for being able to have training manuals and, and having the right structures set up so that people can really plug in and participate from their communities. And so that all that value is recirculating in the local economy, I think is a really important component of being able to scale both within a market and for being able to, to bring that same process to other markets. Talk a little bit more about your gender empowerment, because I know that you've said it a couple of times here, and, and I think it's really just really an important part of your work, but I'd love to hear more about that. So gender empowerment has several layers for 10 Power. And it, of course, starts internally with our company and looking at best practices in terms of hiring and trying to keep gender balance on our own team. The next layer is within our solar installer base, so all of our subcontractors. We so far have not found any women-led solar installer companies in Haiti. You know, anytime that that happens, if, if you're looking at like a Silicon Valley hiring pipeline, anytime that your pipeline is not reflective of the, the candidates that you want to hire or, or of the populations that you want to hire, you have to go back and see how, how far down that pipeline that you need to go in, in order to start cultivating those candidates. And so, so we are right now working in, um, in schools. We're partnered with Haiti Tech, which is a leading tech university in Haiti. And they have a program that's sponsored by the Solar Electric Light Fund. They have 50% women in that program. And so we're providing internship opportunities. We're providing field opportunities for their students, women and men, to be able to gain more experience in the solar market. And we'll hopefully be able to hire them one day. You know, obviously Haiti is the poorest country in our hemisphere. It brings the point, why start in Haiti? I'm wondering if there's in particular a connection to Haiti or how that got how that got spawned. I do have friends in Haiti that I that I knew before starting Ten Power. 
actually when when I first left my job at AutoGrid and I knew I wanted to start a company that was providing renewable energy in places without electricity, coupled with clean water and access to regenerative development with a gender empowerment lens. I kind of had this really big picture vision, but I didn't have a specific business plan or a specific market that I was looking at. And so, so kind of following a lot of UX need finding principles, you know, a lot of when, you, when you're developing an app, first you figure out your user base and then you do a lot of customer interviews and need finding, you know, before you build your feature set. So kind of taking that tech approach, I first created a, a graph of all the countries in the world. On one axis was, was the price of electricity. And on the other axis was the, the um, amount of electricity. That, that people actually used. Most countries are kind of along this least squares regression line with, with high cost, high access being the European countries with feed-in tariffs, low cost, low access being like your India, China, emerging economies. Some countries like the US and Canada with low cost and high use. But then in the fourth quadrant, with the world's highest cost of electricity and lowest usage of electricity, there's just a handful of countries and Haiti really popped out to me as the country that's closest to home. It just has the most extreme conditions in, in terms of poverty, in terms of people not having access to electricity, in terms of very high fuel costs because they're importing almost 100% of their electricity generation capacity as fossil fuels. Those imports are really draining the GDP and the situation, which, which I'll get into um, in a little bit, is, is getting worse and worse. It's borderline humanitarian crisis right now in Haiti. I was looking at those factors and seeing, hey, Haiti is really close by. I don't have to use a whole bunch of carbon miles flying halfway across the planet you know, while, while I'm really directly involved in, in pioneering this business model. And I had friends in Haiti who had been working there for some time. And, and so I, I felt really comfortable landing there and beginning to do market research. So taking this customer-centric need-finding approach led us to our business model. As I'm seeing, as people are contacting me, you know, from Nepal and Congo and Nigeria, I'm, I'm seeing that the market conditions in Haiti are very similar to other places with low energy access. There's usually very expensive fossil fuel-based electricity that people cannot afford to be connected to. And when you map out energy poverty, it's centered close to the equator. It's kind of the, the curse of resources, right? In this post-neocolonial society that we're living in, you know, the governments that were oppressed because they were resource rich are now the ones that have so much solar generation potential, are clustered around the equator, but are, are not able to harness that electricity because they don't have the financial capacity to do so because of historical injustices. So, so it's, it's pretty exciting in terms of a social business opportunity, you know, that now that the technology, the costs of solar have fallen such that it's price competitive with diesel, which is what you, most of these countries are using as their primary energy source, that we can really have a cost competitive model that is economically empowering and also completely sustainable. In Haiti right now, we are kind of witnessing the, the worst case scenario for what is going to happen to our global economies if we don't begin to wean off of fossil fuel quickly. So in, in the past 12 months or so, Haiti has really started to slide into a lot of civil unrest. People are incredibly upset with the, the state that fossil fuels have put the economy into. We saw the writing on the wall in 2015 when I actually first started fundraising for 10 Power. I was creating briefs for investors on this because the entire Caribbean region used to import fossil fuel from Venezuela under the Petro-Caribe Agreement. And they were getting heavily subsidized 
oil agreements with Venezuela. Basically, the majority of the payments deferred at 1% interest for something like 20 years. And as Venezuela's economy was starting to collapse, we saw the writing on the wall in terms of this subsidy going away for the Caribbean region. And especially places like Haiti that don't have a very large national budget, either the price of electricity and the price of oil, which basically in the entire economy is dependent on, was going to skyrocket. Or what actually wound up happening is the Haitian government started subsidizing that oil. So they took on the subsidy that Venezuela was previously providing. Well, Venezuela started calling their debts to Haiti. And so what that did for Haiti's national economy is it's, it's been putting the government farther and farther into debt. And last year, the IMF actually told Haiti that they were no longer going to lend to the country unless they raised the price of oil to reflect market prices. And so the government tried to raise the price of oil by 47% overnight. And the population just absolutely revolted, burning tires in the streets. They started an investigation into corruption around Petrocaribe. And so now that that scandal is really igniting people and folks are, are furious and the people are taking to the streets. The currency is unstable right now because the government is continually going into debt and solar is really the answer. There's so much sun in Haiti. People can utilize this natural local resource. They can keep money circulating within the country instead of it going outside of Haiti's borders for importing this fossil fuel you know, dependency that they've been perpetuating. And, and it can really help to fortify the pillars of the Haitian economy. So the types of customers that we're talking to, you know, water distribution, food distribution, pharmaceuticals, hospitals, schools, large employers, manufacturers. So, so these are really the pillars of the Haitian economy. And if they can switch over to solar, it's really going to do massive things for demonstrating that sustainable development is possible to both empower the economy, to empower the community, and to, to help create a sustainable energy source. So it's super crucial right now. Haiti, it's not hitting the American news right now, but Haiti is really, really approaching crisis situations and solar is the answer. I see it kind of as a microcosm for our, our planet. I mean, look at, how, look at how hard the mortgage crisis rocks global economies. And what percentage of players in the entire finance industry were actually involved with the mortgage crisis? You know, how, how many pieces of like true, true bad debt, you know, like really bad assets were there? Not that many compared to how deeply entrenched and intertwined fossil fuels are in every single thing that we do. So looking at the massive ripple effects, you know, that this tiny mortgage crisis had versus the entirely destabilizing effects that, that the decline in fossil fuels, that instability in fossil fuel markets can have, it just underpins the importance of transitioning now while we have time, while we still can, and investing quickly in renewable energy resources. What a great testament to the leadership of 10 Power that you so passionately can defend the position on so many different levels of why Haiti, the importance of being there and the value of the work that can be extrapolated from there into other places in the world. One of the things that stands out to me, though, is that I don't think I was quite surprised by, but I'm certainly pleased to hear was the lens, the specific sort of uh, tech lens that you looked through UX approach, looking at the customer journey, really analyzing data as to which country or where the country needs were specifically. The way that you parse that out is very intriguing. If any of that is information that you'd be willing to share publicly, I'd love to share it with the Solar Warriors who are listening because that that sort of uh, information, uh, sort of the way that you thought about going at that is exactly the kind of learning that I feel it's not readily apparent 
for folks who are trying or grappling with how to how to move their company forward. We try to expose folks to that sort of thinking. Is that something that you'd be willing to share? Yeah, it would be actually really be fun to do like a webinar workshop on how to apply design thinking and customer need finding to impact. People reach out to me a lot with kind of help, you know, transitioning their career, finding more purpose in their career. And it would be really fun to have a resource to, to point them towards to be like, okay, well, let's, let's take a look. Like what's, what is the problem that keeps you up at night? What's the thing that troubles you most? What, what are you most afraid of in the future? Now let's break that down into what is causing that. So like figure out, you know, the, the, percentages are the largest contributors to that problem. And now within those contributors to the problem, like what are the biggest solutions that you could have? It's, it's like a, a pretty simple, you know, parsing, parsing of a problem into a solution. I would love to have uh, a follow-on conversation with you about that webinar. It sounds right up my alley. If in the meantime, we could share that data with listeners, that'd be fantastic. And we'll certainly, uh, I'm happy to bring you back in sort of in front of our audience, uh, the Suncast audience to do that webinar. It sounds really intriguing if that's something that you're offering. Cool. Yeah, sure. All right. Absolutely. Well, Sandra, it has been great talking to you about uh, 10 Power, but also more importantly, I think your journey as a woman in clean energy and an impact. And I want to applaud all the efforts that you're making right now to help the people in the greatest need. And unfortunately, the forcing function is that historic fossil industry. And and uh, we, we look forward to watching you thrive in solving this problem going forward. So thank you so much for being here with us on Impact Positive. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. And if anybody's interested, you can find us at 10pwr.com or our handle on most social media is at 10pwr. So I really appreciate you guys having me here today. Thanks. Thanks for the recognition. Sandra Quack is the CEO and founder of 10 Power, empowering those with the greatest need in places that are suffering from energy access, water access, and overall equity and finance access. So we are, we are honored, again, as John said, to have you here in our presence and to be a guest on Impact Positive. The Suncast uh, Solar Warriors salute you, and we certainly hope to be able to follow up with you and do some fun stuff in real life as we all keep pushing this forward. Thank you so much. Thanks, y'all. Great to be here today. Hey, thanks a ton for sticking around all the way through to the end, Solar Warrior. I hope that you learned as much as I did from Sandra and John's conversation today. And I say Sandra and John because I sort of sat in the background. John knows his stuff when it comes to finance, and Sandra is in a league of her own. I'm eager to hear what your takeaways were. I'm sure that you have them. Would you mind posting your thoughts on Twitter or LinkedIn and give us a tag? Tag Sandra, John, myself. We're eager to hear how this one impacted you. As always, you can find the resources and the highlights from the discussion over on the blog at mysuncast.com. To learn more about today's guest in this episode or past, please click on that link that says listen. That'll take you to the episodes page. You'll get the show notes, social media, and website links, and other goodies covered in every episode. I even dug up Sandra's TEDx video, so please go take a look. While you're there, I do hope that you'll check out the Suncast Tribe, where you can be a part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. Click on the member button to learn how to gain access to the uncut interviews and tribe exclusives that just don't make it into the public Suncast feed. And of course, when you subscribe to the newsletter, you will be notified when the next episode is out, or perhaps where I'll be next. Well... 
You know, I'm so happy always that you choose to be here with me. Your time is the greatest investment that you can make, and I hope that you will see a dividend in your life this week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.